HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin is home to the nation's only master cheesemakers program that provides innovative cheesemakers with continuing education opportunities? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host tonight, Leah Kurtz. And here with us, we have Azerbaijan-born food entrepreneur and recipe developer, Uli Nasibova. Um, Uli left the world of finance to pursue her passion, making gelato, and started a thriving business, Gelateria Uli, a small batch from scratch gelateria in Los Angeles. Uli, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so um, you were originally from Azerbaijan, and you know what was that like? How long did you live there before you um, came to the U.S.? Um, I was seventeen when I came to United States to go to college. So um, I lived there the first seventeen years of my life. Uh, all of my family is still back in Baku, Azerbaijan. So I try to visit as much as I can, work permitting. Yeah. <laughs> and what was that like uh, coming here so young as well for college? Um, and were you on your own? Were you staying with family? I was on my own. I was staying at a dorm. Um, it was very interesting, very different. I grew up um, during the tail end of Soviet Union. So I saw the Soviet Union collapse. My country became independent. Uh, there were a couple of bloody conflicts <laughs> while that was happening. Um, but overall, I had a pretty good childhood, I'd like to say. And um, coming here was my childhood dream. Mm-hmm. Uh, ever since I was little, I wanted to come to America. So when I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to go to Colorado College, I obviously took advantage of the opportunity and came to go to CC, a fantastic liberal arts college, um, studied there for four years, 
majored in mathematical economics and French literature. (laughs) I was an immigrant, you know, I was like, I'm here, I got to make the most of it. Um, So I did that. And when I graduated, I didn't have very many options because I was an international student and I wanted to stay in the United States. So in order to get a work visa, I decided, well, you know, I could leverage my mathematical econ background and look for work in um, the finance world, which is what I did. Mm. And like uh, when you when you were here in school, was what kind of what role did food play for you? Were you cooking for yourself? Were you trying to kind? Of, did you? I assume you missed probably the flavors. Of oh my god! Yes. Back home, did you? Were there any like <laughs> Azerbaijan like restaurants around you? I mean, no. Colorado <laughs> doesn't sound like <laughs> probably so, it has a lot, but Colorado today is yeah, today, very not, different yeah, than yeah. Colorado in two thousand one, which is when I got here, and I like telling the story because it's funny and sad but mostly funny. My international uh, student orientation, um, for my international student orientation, they took us to uh, for a day trip to Walmart. And I will never forget the shock that I experienced because where I come from, you know, you get your yogurt from farmers. You know farmers. It's, it's a small country. Our population currently is around 9 million, so we're very um, self-sustaining. We grow our own food. We, you know, we, don't, we don't need a big mass production um, mechanism to feed the people. Right. So uh, growing up, you have relationships with your butcher, with your milk guy, with your blueberry guy. I mean, you name it. So when I saw that there was a whole aisle dedicated to, I mean, pick a product, and there were 15 million brands to choose from and all these labels, it was, it was a little shocking. And then I'll never forget the size of vegetables, Mm. giant carrots, giant potatoes, giant eggplants, giant everything. It was it was very shocking. (laughs) (laughs) It was shocking. And, you know, eventually I found my little um, niche markets. There was this um, incredible little organic market that we went to a couple of co-ops, wild oats, which later became Whole Foods. And my relationship with food um, Evolved <laughs> with American food. Mm-hmm. Uh, around the same time, I would call my mom a lot and I would ask her for recipes because I was missing food. Dorm food is not exactly great. Not just for international students, for Americans as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think a lot of people, when they go to college, have that shock. Uh, mine was a little more amplified. So yeah, and I learned how to cook by talking to my mom on the phone. And to this day, when I cook at home for my family, I'm talking savory. I will only cook food from my country. Wow. I, I'm perfectly capable of whipping up other stuff, but um, I was really missing food from my country. So that's, given the opportunity to cook, that's what I make. Mm, that's really beautiful, though. I'm sure that helps you connect both in just the conversations, the pragmatic like conversations with your mother of, oh, yeah. you know, okay, what is that spice and how, <laughs> what's an alternative? Because I can't find that here, <laughs> or, you know, yeah. but also the flavors of, I mean, we, yeah, our memory is so heavily tied to smells and tastes that I'm sure is like powerful and got you through some hard times and yeah. loneliness. And, you know, there are no cookbooks where I grew up. So when I'm talking to my mom and say, so how do you make X, Y, Z? She's like, 
a little bit of that and then you kind of watch it and when it starts bubbling I'm like so five minutes 15 what are we talking about here <laughs> she's like well you just kind of have to watch and see and I'm like okay so I learned to cook that way where it wasn't a timer it was me just standing there and watching and it creates a um, better relationship with the ingredients I think you you get to learn a little bit more about food chemistry as you're watching it I'm probably trusting your own intuition about Absolutely. and your own taste because you're not following what's written in front of you. You're, yeah. If you're lucky, you have your mother on the phone. If yeah. not, <laughs> you're just going rogue. Yeah. yeah. One of the greatest things she taught me was to smell for salt. Whenever I salt my dishes, it is the smell that helps me determine whether there's enough salt or not. Wow. And I cannot describe it. And when I tell my husband who's American about it he's like this is impossible you're making it up I'm like no trust me the food starts smelling different when there's just the right amount of salt there's just something in in chemistry and that's one of the things she taught me over the phone wow and do you write any of that down now like for yourself or for friends or do you kind of keep it the oral tradition oral for my food for my country it's all oral yeah and uh, now that I'm, I've lived in the United States and I've learned a little bit more about French cooking, uh, specifically French cooking, I try to incorporate actually some French technique into um, cooking food from my country. Um, so I'm actually continually experimenting mm-hmm. and changing the recipes. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm trying to impress my mom, trying to make it better than she does. So I've got some <laughs> tricks up my sleeve. <laughs> um, have you been able to cook with? Your mom, I mean... Impossible. It can only be one cook in my mother's kitchen. Mm. <laughs> yes, she's very particular. My mom is a PhD in mathematics. And um, when I tell that to people, it's very surprising because they're not used to hearing that, oh, your mom, who's a mathematician and um, worked her entire life that she cooked. Like, yeah, well, where I come from, especially during the period of time when I was growing up, we didn't have... Uh, ready grab and go food situation you know if you want to eat proper dinner you make it and you make it from scratch nowadays it's a very much developing country um, there's all kinds of conveniences out there but when I was growing up and the tradition that I try to keep is my mother cooked and she cooked really well and she cooked from scratch wow <laughs> and making time for that and kind of probably developing this efficient ritual of yeah. like okay you know you know the go-to <laughs> yeah Exactly. The routine. Yeah. Wow. So when you, it was when you were in college that you started, or I guess, when did you get started in uh, making gelato? Like what sparked that interest for Until you? much later. So I was out of college. I was already living in LA. I was living specifically in downtown Los Angeles, a very dynamic and interesting neighborhood. And I say that was a lot of love for the neighborhood. Just not, there are not very many (laughs) ways you can describe it. It's a complex place, but I love it. I've been there for 10 years. I was living in this neighborhood that was infectious with this energy where people were starting businesses, experimenting, and a lot of very interesting restaurants were opening also at the same time. At the same time, LA is an incredible culinary city. There's so many different cuisines, diverse cultures. So I, as an immigrant, I'm always interested in other immigrants' kitchens and their food. 
So LA was an amazing opportunity for me to go out there and try different things. And one thing I never found to my satisfaction was good uh, ice cream or gelato. And I always found whatever was out there too sweet. Um, I went through a vegan phase. Um, and I would always be searching for sorbets that weren't too icy or too sweet. Mm-hmm. You're a vegan, you know. Sometimes yep, you yep. bite into it and you're like, my teeth are going to hurt for a few days because there's just way too much sugar. Yeah, you know, when you're like not working candy. <laughs> yeah, when you're not working with um, butter fat, uh, the other ingredient you can work with is sugar, and some people overdo it. So um, early on in my recipe making, I... Well, first of all, I needed a challenge. There were many things happening in my life at that time, but I needed a challenge, and I wanted gelato, and I wanted to make my own. I'm the kind of person, when I'm dissatisfied with something, I fix it. That's just my, you know, if I don't like something, I'll take it apart and put it back together. Same with food. I'll make it. And um, I think I approached it from that mindset. I'm also very impulsive. When I've made a decision, I just kind of go for it. And at the time, I was surrounded by entrepreneurs, people starting businesses, people doing things, creating things. And I'm craving gelato. There's nothing in my neighborhood um, that is serving up gelato at the time. Um, there are a bunch of places now, but 10 years ago, there weren't any very, there weren't very many that I could remember. So I, I, I kind of dove head first into recipe making. And I was experimenting in my home kitchen. I immediately went from um, a home-style ice cream gelato maker to commercial-style. I immediately recognized that. To achieve the kind of texture, taste, consistency I want, I have to eliminate as many variables as possible. And the best way to do it is by using incredible Italian gelato machines. Their technology is amazing. You can also make ice cream in those machines. But oh. There's just something about these Italian machines. They're, they're, they're still made in Italy, and there's still so much pride and craftsmanship that goes into it. It's not like an American design, design in America, assembled in X. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's these beautiful machines that are themselves works of art made in Italy. And that probably took up a lot of room in your apartment. Yes. (laughs) Had to change a little bit of plumbing and a little bit of electric setup to get that baby going. But I missed that machine. I I eventually, when I was starting my business, had to make the difficult decision of selling it. But um, it was was wonderful. It was my little escape at the time. You know, I I didn't want to be in finance. I wasn't unhappy or anything. I was just in a place where I had to be for practical reasons and not because my calling was in that industry. So I started um, making recipes and inviting friends over. It was always an excuse for having people over to test out this new flavor or that new flavor. It was great. And then how, like, what was the timeline of when you started making the recipes and then when you decided, okay, I'm I'm going to... I'm going to do this. I'm going to start this business. and So I had a couple of early wins where um, I made a, I formulated a couple of recipes, and they were incredible. And I think I got lucky. I think the universe was telling me, go for it. An impulsive person that I am, pretty much immediately I started writing a business plan. <laughs> and um, 
I'm laughing because, yeah, could have turned out <laughs> very differently. But I started writing a business plan, and um, I started looking for, you know, business plan is such an amazing thing. And I'm going to step into my kind of businesswoman's shoes for a second. It helps you compartmentalize this big, ginormous idea of starting a business because it's divided into chapters. First, you have to do market research. You know, there's a whole chapter. Why gelato? So you talk about gelato. So I, at the time, was an um, investment uh, planning analyst, so research was kind of in my DNA a little bit. So I started researching. why For me, why gelato and not ice cream? Because mm-hmm. I had decided early on I like gelato as a product better. And I still get asked this question a lot, are you Italian? Do you have an Italian grandma that passed on these recipes? People want to hear that story. Mm-hmm. I'm not Italian. <laughs> I'm Azerbaijani. You don't know where that is. It's okay. I did not have any recipes. I created them. And I picked gelato over ice cream because, in my opinion, it's a better product. It has less air. It's denser. You get more pro- product per bite, less air per bite mm-hmm. than ice cream. It's a lower content of butter fat, so you're using primarily milk and less cream, so it's a little healthier. Mm-hmm. You're indulging, but you're not, you know, clogging up your arteries <laughs> too much. Of course, it depends on how much you're eating. <laughs> and what I really like about gelato making, there's still so many artisans in gelato making that take the craft very seriously. Not just in Italy, but also in the United States. I uh, took a course with this incredible woman. She's a mentor. She's Italian. And um, she, the way she makes gelato is very much from scratch. She's incredible. Maria. Um, and um, that's why I picked gelato. So that was step one. And then I was researching my neighborhood and everything. So I compartmentalized this crazy idea that I had into these chapters. How to do financing, how to build it, what's the budget, what's the performa this, performa that. And I was like, you know what, I can do this. I can pull this off. And I think we immigrants have a bit of an advantage because we're already in a new country and we're a little used to hustle. Mm-hmm. So like a little added fun adventure hustle, it's no big deal. And maybe in a way coming with a different perspective, you can see opportunities that maybe if you're just immersed in that community and you always have been, maybe you don't notice those like, hey, there is no gelateria yeah. here. Like, yeah. I can, you know, maybe see those, yeah, those opportunities better. I think we all want our American dream and that became my American dream mm. because I was in America, but I wasn't really fulfilling anything where I was serving a community. You know, there are many beautiful things about owning your own shop but one of the most incredible things that inspires me is I'm part of a community and I have a community around me that I built my regulars, people who come back um, people who contribute to flavor suggestions on my website um, these people who write reviews about us and who've been supporting us there's, you know, and right now there are all these images of, you know, the faces of these people are just like flashing in front of my eyes because it, it, it really is a community. And that's magical. And that makes working hard easier. Whereas if you're sitting behind a desk and, you know, so you're a bit more disconnected from your end product. And I was working for a wonderful firm, but in the LA office and, you know, different setup. <laughs> yeah. 
And to be an immigrant female business owner, like, how does that feel? Did you have any pushback when you were trying to, like, get funding or, um, you know, launch your business? A lot of pushback. And um, my finance background really helped me because I was very confident going into meetings. I knew what I was doing. I knew how much I needed. That, that stuff was easy for me. And I think my case is a bit of a special case. I think for a lot of the creative people that I know, that's usually what gives them anxiety. But people would see me and they would look at me and be like, who are you? Like, what do you think you're doing? And um, it didn't happen a lot. And, you know, I can hold my own. But, you know, when I was building out my first location, I did it in very small budget. So I was hiring a lot of day laborers to do construction. And imagine, uh, you know, 30-something-year-old, not at the time, late 20s, um, trying to boss around these men who are doing construction. And I don't necessarily know, but I'm asking a lot of questions, you know. You get ripped off. (laughs) The job doesn't always get finished. If you accidentally pay a check in advance, you're screwed because you're not seeing that money or that work completed ever again. I mean, you learn these lessons. And and then you realize that part of that is happening is because you're a woman, mm. because people think they can step all over you. And uh, you learn that, you know, I, I'm i very lucky to say that I, I, I had, um, I was a little sneaky. I was like, you know, I'm an immigrant too. I know your game, but... Um, <laughs> I, I did have a situation where somebody left, but um, I had something to make them come back and finish the job. So things like that. You know, you have to be tough. You have to be smart. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of play other people's games. And that's just one example. Construction came to my mind. kind of. Yeah, well, and probably having spent some time in the finance world, at least that end of it, you had some confidence because, you know, you I were entering. I was in a room with men all the time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Men who were a little older, couldn't pronounce my name, and like I had to build up that confidence where I was like, you know what, that doesn't faze me. I know who I am. So. Yeah, you named your gelateria after yourself. It's I pretty did. great. <laughs> Make them say it every time. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to challenge you. <laughs> it's not my real name, though. My real name is Ulvia, which nobody can pronounce. Uli is my American nickname. Oh, okay. Uli is the time when I gave up and I said, you know what? I'm going to be Uli and not Ulvia because it's been enough mispronouncing. Oh, <laughs> they're so beautiful, both of them, though. Thank Uvia? you. Ulvia. Ulvia. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's yeah. Is that like... I, I know so many, I have so many friends who have, you know, this is my, this is my American name because right. nobody can pronounce my real yeah. name. And is that awkward to kind of adjust to? Or? No. You adjust to anything. I'm Uli now. Yeah. I don't have to deal with people calling me Sylvia sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> that happened. So. All right. Well, we are going to take a quick commercial break and then we'll be right back with... Uli's Gelateria. (laughs) Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? 
For me, I think cheese curds, delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds or deep fried cheese curds, cheese curds literally anyway, anytime, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Roth's Grand Cru Searchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk, fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. We're a show about food, identity, and politics. And today we have Uli Nasibova with us. She um, is the food entrepreneur and recipe developer and owner of um, Gelateria Uli. And we've been chatting a little bit about her background as an immigrant from Azerbaijan um, and now a gelateria owner and uh, in LA. And she's actually brought some of her gelato with um, with her in the <laughs> studio. Um, so I'm very excited to taste that. I'm sorry y'all can't enjoy it as well, but go to LA and you will. Exactly. Um, so Uli, uh, maybe ex- maybe tell us a little bit about what you've brought and mm-hmm. um, what inspired this combination of flavors. Your gelato is kind of unique in that you're pulling from different food cultures that, mm-hmm. that you um, that you kind of are immersed in in your LA community and where you source from and kind of this community you've built just through other um, food producers and growers. Mm-hmm. So I have three sorbets here and um, without it wasn't intentional but they actually the three of them represent a third of my menu in a way. I have a classic flavor, I have a seasonal flavor, and then I have what I call my inventive flavors. And uh, all three of them happen to be vegan, so hooray. <laughs> I didn't have to convert you. Not that I ever would, but you know what I mean. So I want to talk about the most important part of my menu. And I have always loved trying other cuisines and I think it's because I am an immigrant in this country of immigrants and I'm for the first time in my life I'm in a place where there's all kinds of different people and better yet they bring their food with them (laughs) and I live in LA now so I get to try some of the best ethnic food outside of its home country So in L.A., shout out to L.A., by the way, we have incredible Mexican food, my favorite, number one favorite thing about L.A., and then we have some of the best Chinese food in San Gabriel Valley outside of China, and Chinese food itself, I mean, it's just like China is a huge country, there's so many different traditions, and San Gabriel Valley represents them pretty well. We have historic Filipino town right outside of 
downtown LA and I was inspired by it to do one flavor. We have Thai town, I have a couple of Thai flavors. I have Thai inspired flavors. I have black sesame gelato inspired by Seth's uh, San Gabriel Valley. I have horchata. I have mango chili, sorbet. I mean, so, you know, I'm not Italian. I'm opening a gelato shop. So what do I put in it? Mm-hmm. Do I go Italian? No, it would. It just wouldn't be authentic. Um, I am uh, an L.A. gelateria. So I am inspired by what's in season. And I'm inspired by my incredible community. So one of the flavors here is Jamaica Aqua Fresca was mint. Yes, that one. Nice. <laughs> and Jamaica or hibiscus lemonade is a lemonade you get at every taco stand. So you go, you have your Jamaica, your horchata, oh, wow. your limon, you know, all these different lemonades. And I love hibiscus. Um, people ask me, how do you tie in your country? Um, I grew up drinking hibiscus tea, actually. So imagine me drinking Jamaica, warm. <laughs> so I tie in my culture and where I come from, not explicitly, but through my ability to relate to other flavors. So I love Jamaica. I love my Mexican food. And I went, when formulating that sorbet, I said, you know what? I'm going to throw some mint in there because... It's just a good combination. Oh, it's beautiful. The it's hibiscus like it works and the mint. So well. It works so well, doesn't it? Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's a sorbet. It's water based. My sorbet is creamy. It's much smoother than. I mean, it looks like gelato. It's much creamier than like the sorbet you would get in the store or something like. And that was my goal from yeah. the get go. Um, when I dove right into recipe making, you know, you you have to study your ingredients. You have to understand food science. And I set out to do sorbets that weren't too sweet and weren't icy. I wanted to have that experience as a sorbet consumer at the time. The experience of eating a creamy gelato without the butter fat of milk or cream. Yeah, and the flavors are bright and you, you taste them without, yeah, just a heavy, you know, dose of sugar. Yes. Yes. So I, I get creative with my ingredients, you know, I use vegetable fibers uh, plant fibers, I use uh, plant proteins, all healthy stuff. But the reason why that texture is so beautiful is because I use um, great ingredients and I know how to use them. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Creamy texture in a sorbet that is water-based. No milk, wow, uh, alternative yeah. milks, no hemp, hemp, soy, or almond milk. And um, that's, that's Jamaica. And what are some of your, um, you know, kind of like favorite relationships you've developed with local growers? Obviously, you're in California, mm-hmm. so it's the perfect environment for mm-hmm. being able to pull, you know, the best citrus and the best herbs. And you have a pistachio gelato that um, is using California pistachios. Can you talk a little bit about those kind of relationships you've built? Of course. So when I was making my pistachio originally, when you open a gelato shop, you're, you you get a lot of phone calls from suppliers. I mean, any restaurant, you get phone calls from suppliers, and people try to sell you pastes. Um, and a lot of these uh, pistachio pastes, they were very interesting. You know, Sicilian this and blah, blah, blah. And you look at the ingredient list, and you know, you're like, oh, pistachio extract. Why is there pistachio extract in pistachio paste? 
there should be one ingredient, pistachios. So I said, you know what? And, and, and there was a drought in Italy and pistachio, like a pound of pistachio paste was like more expensive than, I don't know, gold. I'm exaggerating, <laughs> but you get the point. I said, wait a second, I'm in California. When you drive through uh, Central California, sometimes you see those nut farms because there's like always this cloud of like, they're shelling the nuts and there's this like little fuzzy cloud above them. Like, I bet we grow pistachios in California and I find vitamin farms. Fitiman Farms is one of the oldest pistachio-growing farms in California, maybe the country, so they say, I believe them. And it's incredible. I call them or email them, and they UPS next day arrives my pistachio paste. It was pistachios that were lightly roasted the week before and turned into a paste. There's one ingredient, pistachios. And by the way, American pistachio roasting and turning into a paste, you know, the tradition here is a little younger. The roast is very light, so you're getting this really raw pistachio taste, my pistachio gelato. And I know that a lot of people prefer my California. It's a completely different flavor profile than what you're used to when you go to Italian gelaterias. But um, it's a wonderful farm. You know, when you sometimes, I, I, I've, I've seen how pistachio paste from a supplier from Italy, you know, like, they sit on the shelf for such a long time. The solids are on the bottom. The oil separates on the top. The beauty of working with Fitiman Farms, my pistachios just pistachios were just roasted the week prior and turned into a paste. It doesn't separate. I'm sure opening that package was just like the most yeah. fragrant. <laughs> it's like the most incredible nut butter you've ever had. Like if you love peanut butter, almond butter, it's basically pistachio butter. And, it's, and you open it and you're like, don't eat it. Don't eat it. Don't eat it. And um, raw pistachios. I also have, um, well, they're not raw, they're r- lightly roasted, but I also incorporate, actually, um, pieces of pistachio into my gelato. So there's that texture, too. And, you know, it's probably a great sense or source of pride to be able to support the, pe- the people around you. You've created your own business, but also, like, you're kind mm-hmm. of giving back in a way by mm-hmm. not just trying to find the cheapest ingredient, but mm-hmm. actually finding the people who care as much about their products as you do about yours and are I'm sure many in you know in many cases immigrants as well and absolutely of course in today's very like anti-immigrant culture in ways I mean certainly like the I think the majority of us are you know speaking out even more but certainly um, people in power are really uh, doing what they can to um dismantle that sense of pride in being an immigrant in this country does that like how does that sit with you now as being able to you know you're a small business but being able to at least um form stronger bonds and give back in a way like (laughs) well it's funny because when I hear that I say well unless if you're Native American you're an immigrant you know there are different waves of immigrants and history always shows different parts of at different times, you know, this and that group is not loved. And then as they assimilate and then other groups come in, well, then now we don't like these people. And yeah, this country has a very complex history. And, you know, most of the people, as far as I know, are not Native Americans. So we're all immigrants. We're all in the same boat. We came here at different times. So let's try to work together and be good to each other. But 
I have to say, one of the big reasons why I love living in California is because of its immigrant communities. I relate to my city. I feel like I'm part of it. Before I moved to California, to L.A., I had a hard time seeing myself, envisioning my future in the United States. Um, people were very friendly, by the way. I love Colorado. It was one, it's, still is one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. And I'm very grateful for my experiences there. But I think immigrants make this place better. Yes, they do. <laughs> Absolutely. So where can we, kind of for our listeners, where can we find your gelateria, both um, on the ground and also on social media? Like, how can we stay in touch? I know you do a cool um, thing where you get uh, requests for new recipes and new flavors. And right. so like, Flavor what's your website? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on social media, um, I, my, my, um, social media name is gelateria Uli, one word. So you can find us on Instagram, on Facebook. My and Uli is U-L-I. Yes. U-L-I, three letters. And my website is www.gelateriauli.com. And there is a section on my website where you can suggest a flavor. And if we make it, you get a pint. Mm. So kind of going back to L.A. being my um, inspiration for flavors, if you actually look at the suggestions that I get, um, L.A. is a diverse place, so I get diverse suggestions. So I can't take all the credit for coming up with these beautiful flavors. It's what my customers want. And I have two retail stores. One is in downtown Los Angeles in the Spring Arcade building at 541 South Spring Street. The second one is in Mid-City. It's on the street called West 3rd Street. It's a beautiful area as well. West 3rd and Crescent Heights. So those are my two retail locations. And my first retail location actually has the gelato kitchen attached to it. And I have a large window, a lot like the one we have here, where you can look into the kitchen and you can see the process. Oh, wow. You can see how it's made. It's very transparent. Wow. I'm sure that's a lovely visual. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, Uli, thank you for your delicious sorbets and for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure having you. Um, And thank you all for listening. Uh, Please tune in next week for a new episode of Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network at 6.30 p.m. And again, I've been your host, Leah Kurtz, and we'll see you next time. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 
Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.